Today's lesson is taken from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations, his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I, that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your children, O Zion, against your children, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like, like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will, will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the gospel. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. John in the 12th chapter of his gospel beginning at the 12th verse. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
This is the gospel of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray to be instruments of your peace and reconciliation as we wait and long for the return of our Messiah, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now you may be seated. Our Zechariah reading is one of the most famous uh, passages in the Bible. Uh, when Asher had read it for us, you probably immediately pictured our gospel reading. That is Jesus on Palm Sunday, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's an iconic image that has been depicted and reimagined in so many different ways and given so many different connotations. Perhaps its original meaning has become lost to us since... We have so long commercialized and sentimentalized that historic moment. A good question for us to ask is, how would the surviving Jewish remnant during Zechariah's time have heard this prophecy for the first time? What did this mean for them? follow-up to that question is, how then do we hear the same passage instructing us and inspiring us in a fresh way. If you grew up in church, you probably heard this story so many times, this prophecy. I want to tackle these two questions today. How would the Jewish remnant who are building their life again from exile have heard this passage? That's the first. And then in light of that, the second, how would we today hear the same passage in view of our own spiritual, cultural exile this day and age as followers of Jesus? Those two questions. So I invite us to turn to your Bibles, if you have them. Grab your uh, phones. We could go to chapter 9 of Zechariah. You could grab a pew Bible in front of you, too. It's on page 989 in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 9. So first, a bit of background. Though before the Jews went into exile, God sent these prophets, or a lot of these prophets, early prophets, to warn the divided kingdoms of uh, Israel to the north and then Judah to the south, that judgment will come if they continued in their injustice and idolatry. These prophets had a lot of bad news to share. But mixed in with these warnings were promises. The early prophets also had a lot of good news to share. And one of those good news was that God is going to raise up a king From the line of David who will reunite the north and the south together. And he will rule somehow the whole world, the entire planet. The prophets before the exile talked so much about this Messiah King. Fast forward to Zechariah's time after the exile. See, Jerusalem was now being repopulated by the remnant community. But only a handful of prophets emerged to support and encourage the rebuilding So far, these post-exilic prophets, they make no mention of a Messiah king. Except then, the remnant hears for the first time, after so many decades without any messianic promise, the prophet Zechariah saying something 
about a king. Among the post-exilic prophets, Zechariah was the only one who said anything explicitly about the Messiah. Our reading today is actually the third time Zechariah mentions the Messiah. See, the first time Zechariah mentioned him was back in chapter 3. We looked at it three Sundays ago. It was a vision of Joshua the high priest on trial in heaven. The branch is mentioned to be coming. The second time Zechariah mentions the Messiah is in chapter 6. I'm going to explain this a bit for a bit of background. This is actually a shocking and almost heretical description of the Messiah. See, in that prophecy, God tells Zechariah to go grab some silver and gold from a few Jewish patriarchs who had just gotten to to Jerusalem from Babylon. He was told to make a crown out of the silver and gold that he would get. And then with that crown, he was to go up to Joshua the high priest at the time and put in put that crown on his head. That was supposed to illustrate who the Messiah will be. He will be both priest and king. That was shocking. That was shocking because for the Jews, the role of king was never allowed to overlap with the role of priest and vice versa. See, the first biggest mistake in Jewish royal history was when King Saul presumed to be a priest. He offered up the sacrifice to God before going into battle. The prophet Samuel rebuked him saying, you're not supposed to do that. Because he did that, the crown was taken away from him. Priest and king were not allowed to be doing the same thing. But then here, after 500 plus years, God is saying he's doing something unimaginable, almost heretical to the ears of the Jew. The ancient Jew, he will combine the two very distinct roles of priest and king together in this future Messiah, a royal crown being placed on the head of the high priest. That was sacrilegious. That was shocking development for the Jews to imagine. How can Messiah be both priest from the line of Aaron and be king from the line of David at the same time? This is the first time the Messiah is being explicitly portrayed as having priestly Levitical dimensions. That was a lot of explanation. If you follow along so far, I'm going somewhere with this. Let's hold on to that detail for later on. We will pick that up, that Messiah priest motif, again, close to the end. Okay, let's go back now to what we read, chapter 9 of Zechariah. Zechariah moved on from this Messiah priest theme for now, setting that aside And here is bringing up again that familiar, original Messiah King theme. The Jews are like, okay, that's more like it. Please continue, Zechariah. So look with me in verse 9. Zechariah describes for the third time the king entering Jerusalem on a donkey. He's said to be righteous, just, saved, vindicated, and humble. So often sermons on this passage would draw on the humility of the king because he rode on a donkey and not on a military horse, saying something like, Jesus didn't drive in in a Humvee or he didn't drive in in a limo, he rented out a minivan. He would say something like that. As much as that's a good lesson to make, yes, we ought to be humble like Jesus. That's not the main point of this passage in Zechariah. The donkey is a humble creature, yes, but actually it was highly, highly regarded by the Jews in the right context. The donkey was associated with royalty because it was the prophetic animal symbol 
that was ascribed to Judah way back in Genesis, when Jacob, the father, was bestowing his final blessings on his sons one by one. Many of the rulers and judges of Israel, they rode on donkeys as their preferred royal steed. So the image of a Jewish king riding into the capital home on a donkey, it actually signaled something. There was an event that political peace and rest has been won throughout the realms. He's not riding in on a horse where there's still war happening. He needs to get there and everywhere fast. But he's on a donkey. Things are chill. Things are great in all the lands. Relax, I'm on a donkey. It makes sense then that verse 10 follows after this royal messianic image. The war machines and combat issues will be gone from the land of Palestine. The world itself is said to be so disarmed because the Messiah has returned home in triumph to Jerusalem on a donkey. But even as the world is seen to be dispossessed of its weaponry, in verse 13, God himself is shown not to be disarmed. God himself is not disarmed. Verse 13, God arms himself with his own people. You know, with bow and arrow and there's a sword in his hand. These are not, yes, these have been tools of violence, but he's not using them for violence but as instruments of his justice against the empires of the world. Now we could easily pass over verse 13, but for the Jews at the time, this was at the time an image of national hope because it implied that the north and the south kingdoms are actually being brought together in the hands of God. Judas to the south, he says, will be my bow, and I'm going to grab Ephraim to the north, and he will be my arrow. Together, God will wield them as his instrument of justice against the devouring powers of the world. He will weld them together into a single piece of steel, into a one sword when they were so divided over centuries. Again, this is the first time, after a long time, the Jewish remnant is being called again to imagine something they've forgotten for so many generations, this future under the victory in guidance of their Messiah King. The remnant community is being called back. Get up on your feet. Hope for something solid. And you've so grasped something that's fleeting. Live for something that's true when you had lived for a lie. The Messiah King will bring peace and justice and will again unite his divided people from the north and the south. They will be his instrument of peace in this world. Fine and dandy. This is great. This is hopeful. But the rest of the prophecy onwards, it gets weird. It gets super trippy. See, the first half of what I've just described, that's most familiar to us. Very straightforward. But the second half is often skipped over for reasons we will find out next. See, verses 14 to 17, they depict a number of Old Testament scenes in rapid-fire succession. They get all over the place. See, Bible commentators are not sure what's being portrayed exactly. But the first bit shows a cataclysmic moment when God shows up to the world. The way he showed up to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. There were lightning and smoke and the trumpet sounded, freaked everyone out. The weather changed violently when God shows up physically. 
And then in verse 15, the, the image gets bizarre. It's describing God's people as eating and devouring, trampling sling stones. See, these were ancient ammunition for the slingshot, right? Small rocks and pebbles that killed uh, Goliath, uh, used by David. God's people are seen as eating them like they were hors d'oeuvres before a dinner banquet. See, bullets meant to kill are now nourishing and feeding the people of God. That is a weird image. And these sling stones were also being ground up like dust under their feet. Now, this is a scene of a battlefield. God's people are literally snacking on bullets. And then, this is all over the place. The battle scene quickly switches over to the courts of the Jewish temple. But this time, God's people are seen drinking. They're drinking in the courts like they were wedding guests at an open bar. It gets even weirder. They're drinking as though they were described as a bowl overflowing with the blood of the altar sacrifices. That is gruesome. Now, the bowl here, it's not just any kind of bowl. It was a vessel of a priest who collected the blood of the drained uh, sacrifices of the animals. The collected blood in the same bowl was then brought to the bronze altar to dab on the horns of the altar to the size or to pour it over. These Ritual actions officially presented the sacrifices to God. It put into effect the sacrifices and forgiveness of sins. This bloody and exuberant image is showing that God's people will be, as we just read, like a bow and arrow, or like a sword. It is like a king wielding an instrument of warfare. But this time they're being wielded like an instrument of a priest, an instrument of forgiveness of reconciliation, of atonement. It's gruesome, yet cheerful. What is going on? As weird as all that is to us, all these snapshot images would have brought up the stories during when Israel first became a nation under God. They met God as lightning, fire, and smoke in the mountain. The nations came against them along the way. They hurled sling stones at them, but they did not prevail over them. Then God gave them blood of animals, priests, somehow for the forgiveness of their sins that they could be reconciled to God. These images were quick snapshots of the highlights of Israel's founding history. What is God saying? God is saying that I am founding you again, Israel. You just got out of exile. You're back in the land. I will found you again as a nation. You will begin your sacrifices. You will begin as a people. You will begin to be my instruments of peace, of forgiveness, and reconciliation in this world. Back to our first question. How would the Jewish remnant have heard this passage? This would be a message of immense hope and joy. Their Messiah shall rule in Jerusalem, securing peace for the world. The divided kingdoms of north and south will be brought together. The nation shall be founded again by their Messiah. Oh, that sounds all very epic and grand. But then we have our second question. So what for us? Right? How do we then hear this passage for us today as followers of Jesus? Well, we're, we're called to do the same as the Jewish remnant. 
we are called to wait and to long for the Messiah's coming. We're called to wait and to long for Jesus' return. But hold on, right? As Christians, we believe that the Messiah has already come, right? We just read Jesus already went into Jerusalem on a donkey. There's no peace, though. War machines, they still rumble all over the world. Bullets and missiles still fly ahead. Worldly powers still devour. The church itself is divided. We're not just north and south. It's east and west, within and inside. We're fighting and bickering among ourselves. There is no peace. There is no reconciliation. Jesus went into Jerusalem on a donkey, but what gives? What is happening here? What do we make of this? Remember that shocking development. That the Messiah is not just a king, but a priest. This is where we pick it back, back up again. See, in our gospel reading, Jesus, yes, went into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was rightfully hailed as king. He came to bring God's kingdom on earth. Naturally, his followers expected him to do king stuff to secure peace for Israel. But his followers did not expect that Jesus had come not as Messiah king, but as Messiah priest. To first offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Not of an animal, but of himself on the cross. Then this same Jesus will come again for a second time, not as Messiah priest, but as Messiah king, to finish what he started. So the case remains the same for us Christians. We are called to wait and long for Jesus to come back as king. He came as priest, he will come again as king. So how are we to wait and long for the Messiah? We will end on this last reflection How are we to wait and long for the king? Okay, even though Jesus is not physically here, that will be great. But he's still, in fact, at work in this world as priest, as king. He is daily praying and interceding for us. He's ruling and reigning in God's right hand. And while Jesus is at work as priest and king, Jesus arms himself with his people. He arms himself with you, with me, not as instruments of wanton violence, but he infuses us with his spirit, wields us as an instrument of peace, of justice and reconciliation in this world. We just read, God wields Judah and Ephraim as a bow and arrow, as a sword against the empires of earth. Do you consider yourself as an instrument of justice? And peace in the hands of our Messiah against the injustices and divisions of this city. It sounds pretty intense. It's sobering, but do you as a Christian consider yourself as an instrument being wielded by God in his hand? As an instrument of his justice and peace right now? See, through ordinary acts of nonviolent protests... Many black Christian women and men from southern black churches, they defied racist policies, slowly undercut and overturned the discriminatory laws of mid-20th century America. 
They propelled it forward through their ordinary acts of defiance. They propelled forward the civil rights movement that still endures even today. Its legacy still confronts the all-too-familiar tragic and grievous racial inequalities that still rages on in the U.S. We have a similar situation even in Canada with the grievous history of our indigenous relationships, even in the church. Where can we begin there? Would you be an instrument of his peace and justice in the hands of Jesus Christ? Now, reading from Zechariah, God's people were described as a bowl full of blood of the sacrifices. Do you see yourself as a bowl, a priestly vessel, by, held by the Messiah priest Jesus as an instrument of forgiveness and reconciliation that's overflowing with his own blood of mercy and grace poured out for many? That's intense as well. Do you see yourself as a bowl full of blood? That's weird to think about yourself as... On June 2015, 21-year-old Dylan Roof went inside an historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina. He sat in at an evening Bible study. As a study, study wrapped up and the people began to pray, they bowed their heads. Roof stood up, took out a handgun and opened fire. He killed nine people, including the senior pastor. The shooter was motivated by his white supremacist ideals. That was a targeted attack against the black church. As Roof was apprehended, he stood in trial. Relatives of the victims, they went to court, they gave their statements, and they resounded in their unimaginable offer of forgiveness of his monstrous crimes. The daughter of one of the victims said, I forgive you. Have mercy on your soul. Husband of another victim said, I forgive you. My family forgives you. But take this opportunity to repent. Change your ways. Another said, I am very angry. But we are a family that love built. We have no room for hate. So I have to forgive. The bowls of the family of these victims were suddenly filled with the blood of their own loved ones. And they willingly supernaturally poured out forgiveness and grace to the one who had hated them with violence and rage. Would you be an instrument of his mercy, a bowl of his reconciliation in this world to those that you hate right now with serious rage? You've been wronged so badly. There may be a time that you are called to pick up that Christian challenge that Jesus calls each of us to do, to forgive as our Father forgives us. That is hard to do. But God, grant us that supernatural power to do so because of the cross. Forgiveness is an ordinary act, but it's so, so difficult. It's a supernatural work. Let's begin there. Would you be an instrument of his mercy and reconciliation? We're called to wait and long for the coming of our Messiah. He will enter our world once again on a donkey, this time to make eternal peace in this world. He will come again to finish what he started. He will establish his reign of peace on earth 
as we're waiting, as we're longing, let us be willing to be instruments of his peace and his justice, of his mercy and reconciliation, wielded by his strong and sovereign hands for his sovereign purposes. To him be all glory and honor and power and majesty. To Jesus Christ, our Messiah, King and Priest. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.